Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We are continuing in our study in the Gospel of John and specifically in our study of the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17, all take place on Thursday night of the Passion Week, five full chapters on one conversation. And we set the stage with three sermons in chapter 13, um, and we are going to start slowing down. Um, We need to start slowing down. Chapter 13 kind of set the stage in a narrative sense. And as we entered into chapter 14, we saw Jesus comfort his disciples in a very specific way. His disciples are troubled. Of course they're troubled. Their master has told them that he is leaving them, that they cannot follow him, that he will be betrayed, that the betrayer is one of their own, and that Peter, the leader of the disciples, is going to deny Jesus three times before the sun even rises. They're troubled. That's why Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. We looked at five reasons why we can have comfort in the midst of a troubled soul last week. We saw that Jesus is sovereign and trustworthy. We saw that the Father's house has a room specifically for you. We saw Jesus is personally preparing a place for you. And number four, he's going to come back and receive you to himself. And he alone provides eternal life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Moving forward from that section... Jesus is going to be so kind and caring, so compassionate with his disciples. They're struggling with, why are you leaving? And why do you seem happy to be leaving? And Jesus is going to tell them why it's good for him to leave and go to the Father. Jesus is actually not going to tell them that it's good for him to go. It's okay, I have to go, it's okay that I'm gone. What Jesus is going to say, it's not just okay, it's actually better that I'm gone than if I were to stay here. Turn to chapter 16 really quickly. Chapter 16, verse 7. In chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. You're not going to lose out on anything. If I leave, you're actually going to get something in in a better way. It's good. It's better for you that I actually leave. Why is this? We're going to cover this answer in a number of different ways in the following weeks and months as we go through these chapters. But just to set the stage, one of the main reasons is Jesus had limitations. He lived inside of the limitations of humanity. He couldn't be everywhere at one time. He was omnipresent, but he set aside that omnipresence or the independent exercise of it. He never ceased to be omnipresent. But he set aside independently using it to the Father. He said, Father, I will use it when you allow me to use it. He set aside his omniscience or or the independent exercise of it. He never ceased to know everything. But he, he willingly, Philippians 2 tells us, he took limitations to himself, becoming a man, and lived the life that you and I are living now. We can't be in more than one place at one time. And so Jesus took that limitation to himself. But if he goes away... He can send his spirit, which can be in every single place at once. If he goes away, he can send his spirit to every single believer. He can be with every believer at one time. And so he says, it's to your advantage that I go. Turn to chapter 15, verse 26. He says, when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So you're not losing out. You want to learn more about me. You want to grow in your knowledge of me. You want to love me more. You're going to be able to when I leave. I'm going to give you the spirit, and he's going to give you truth. He's going to instruct you. You're going to know me better. You're going to know the Father better. You're going to know the spirit better. One more verse, chapter 16, verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So I can't be with you any longer. I'm leaving, but it's good that I leave. It's better for you that I'm gone because I will give you the spirit and he will teach you. He will instruct you. He will guide you and he will share the truth of the father with you in the exact same way that I have been only with everybody at the exact same time, with all believers at once. These chapters that we're going to get into in 14, 15, and 16, and into 17, are so beautiful in their Trinitarian theology. We see Father, Son, and Spirit a lot. There's no loss with Jesus leaving. And so he tells his disciples, in the verses we're going to look at today, there's no loss in me being uh, removed from the picture, in me leaving and departing, there's no loss. So he's going to walk them through that transition. So let's pick it up in chapter 14, verse 7. We're going to read 7 through 14. And we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time and dive into it together this morning. Chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. So Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, these are profound promises. And they are all rooted and founded in the reality of the person and work of Jesus. And so I pray that we would see his person and his work this morning anew, afresh. We would bow the knee to the mystery of the Trinity. But what is clearly revealed for us, God, I pray that we would take it, submit to it, treasure it, cherish it, and worship you. May we find comfort for our souls, even here as we see Jesus giving specific care and comfort to his disciples. God, we love you. I pray that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We just read that you will instruct us and you will guide us. We have the helper. So we ask for help. Renouncing all self-reliance, 
renouncing all human wisdom and our own efforts. We need Jesus and his spirit to guide us. So help us see Christ, show us Christ by the preaching of your word so that everyone here and everyone outside of these walls that we would go minister to would submit to Christ as Lord. We love him and we pray in his name. Amen. These verses are so, so pregnant with profound theology, pregnant with profound truth and promises that as I was studying them, I came to a decision point, fork in the road last night, and I realized as I was looking at what I was going to try to attempt that it would just be impossible. I wanted to give you verses 7 through 14 in two parts, and they really are connected. That's why I wanted to show you the two parts together, the person and work of Jesus and the promises of Jesus together. Those were going to be the two points of the sermon. But we can't get to his promises unless we understand his person. And what is given to us about his person here in these verses is so crucial for us to understand that we're going to do the promises next week. So if, you, if you're reading like, like I was, you're reading verses 12 through 14, we're going to do the same works that Jesus did. We're going to do better works, greater works than Jesus did. And if we ask for anything in the name of Jesus, he's going to give it to us. If you read those three promises and go, what is happening and why is that not happening in my life? Is it happening in my life? What's going on? If you have questions about that, come next week because we're going to dialogue over those Verses. We are going to discuss what those verses mean in their context. And they are powerful promises for us. They're amazing. But we can't get to them yet because we have to see the person and work of Jesus. That's what, all we're going to cover this morning is verses 7 through 11. We're going to see Jesus on display. So right off the heels of verse 6 where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would know the Father, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Now, there's, there's a textual issue here. There's two ways that this could be read. You can either read it, if you really knew me, but you don't. So it's kind of a negative rebuke. In fact, if you have the NIV, I think it literally does say, if you really knew me, if you really actually knew me, you would know the Father too. D.A. Carson in his commentary, Not Mincing Words, says that translation is textually unwarranted. So it's not that harsh of a rebuke. Jesus isn't saying, you don't know me at all. In fact, he just told them, I'm preparing a place for you. You know me enough to be in heaven with me one day. So perhaps it's the opposite. There's a way that you can read this in the Greek that it's saying, you have come to know me, and since you have come to know me, you also know my Father. I think there's a happy middle ground. There's a way to see this in the Greek as well. This is a little bit of a confusing passage, and it's okay because it doesn't change our theology. There's a way that you can give this a little bit of a conditional statement. If you know me, which the disciples did, then you will know the Father as well. If you know me, you know my Father. He just said, I am the way to the Father, and guess what? If you know me, you know the Father now. And then he says in the back half of that verse, from now on, you know him and have seen him. There's no question about that part of the Greek sentence. This has no issue whatsoever. It's a present tense. You are currently knowing him now. And from this moment forward, you will continue to grow in your knowledge of him. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is, you know me. Maybe not completely, for sure not completely, 
but you know me accurately enough to know that I am the only way to reveal the Father to you. And guess what? You're just going to continue to grow in your knowledge of the Father. You're going to continue to grow. The disciples aren't going to understand this fully. They're not really going to get who Jesus is fully right here in the upper room, but they're going to get it at the end of John. Remember John chapter 20, Thomas in the upper room? When he sees Jesus resurrected Christ, he says, My Lord and my what? My Lord and my God. You are God. And you're my God, and I submit to you. So they're going to get the fact that Jesus is God, very God, and the full revelation of the Father. But right now they're struggling. And that's why Philip's going to say in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I am the full revelation. I am the one who can show you the Father. And so Philip goes, hey, can we have that now? Um, We're sad We're struggling with um, being comforted. Can you just show us the Father? And it'll be enough. We'll be happy. We'll be satisfied. We, We can have enough strength if we just see a vision of the Father. Now, we know, as we continue in these verses, we know Philip's going to totally miss the point here. Totally missing it. In fact, all the disciples are just constantly missing everything in this upper room discourse. Peter, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll die with you. No, that's not going to happen. Thomas, um, we don't know the way. Yes, you do know the way. Philip, we want to see the Father. Jesus says, well, you've already seen him. But before we rebuke Philip, let's just say two things. Number one, he's looking for God. He wants to see God. And number two, he knows that Jesus alone can show him God. So he asks, can I see the Father? I want to see the Father. Maybe he's asking in the same way that Moses did in Exodus chapter 33. Show me your glory. I want to see you. And the father says, well, you can't fully see me because to see God is to die. So we'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. Maybe he's thinking of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 when there's an earthquake and there's a a whirlwind and there's a fire. And in none of those things is God speaking to Elijah. And then in the one small, soft whisper The Father reveals himself. Whatever it is, Philip wants to see God. So let's not be too hard on him. He has a hunger and a thirst for God. And so he says, Jesus, you have access to the Father. You just proclaimed it. Show us God. And Jesus' response very simply is, you've seen him. You want to see the Father? You've seen him here. You've seen him. And as Jesus responds to Philip's question, he's going to give us three truths about the person and work of Jesus. Three truths about Jesus' person and his work. Number one, to see Jesus is to see God. To see Jesus is to see God. For the disciples, it was all too easy to have all the facts, to have all the truth, but completely miss the point. They knew that Jesus was a man sent by God. They knew that Jesus was a, a, a miracle worker, and he preached like nobody else preached. But they're struggling here to see that Jesus is God, very God, in the flesh. Now, again, before we are too um, rebuking of their nature here and struggling with this, I think we would have struggled with this too. You constantly see them asking, who is this guy? Remember the wind and the seas? Uh, In in Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm, and they don't say, well, he's God, that's it, that does it, boom, we're done. They say, who is this guy? Who who is this guy? The wind and the seas obey him. And yet, on the other end, he smells terrible when we've walked around for a bunch in Galilee. He stinks just like me. He he doesn't have a halo around his head. 
He needs to sleep. He's exhausted. He's weeping. He's tired. He needs to eat. His stomach growls just like mine. He's human. But who is this guy that's human that's also doing what God does? Who is this guy? So they're struggling constantly. And what Jesus is saying here in the upper room is, no, 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 once for all, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Do you not understand the entire time I've been with you? I am God. My care for you, Jesus is saying, is no different than the Father's care for you. And the fact that you're troubled by this transition of me leaving shows me that there's a disconnect. So let me spend a little bit of time teaching you and caring for you in the upper room. He says to Philip in verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? You can almost sense a little bit of sadness in Jesus' voice there. Wait, I have been with you for so long, and you still don't get that I am God. Forget about the Father for a second, Philip. What have you missed here? What have you missed? He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Nobody can see the Father. John is going John's going to hear this, and he's going to interpret this for us. If you turn back to John chapter 1, he's going to take this moment from the upper room discourse... And he's going to expound on it in John chapter 1 as he's introducing us to Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. We cannot see the Father. To see the Father, first of all, he is spirit, so we cannot see him. But to see him, if we could see him, is to die. Nobody can see the Father. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, the the Son, remember we went through this, phrase a couple of years ago that the son the only begotten the one who is proceeding forth from god that's jesus and he's in the bosom of the father he's in the very nature and the center of what it means to be god jesus has explained him so nobody can see the father but jesus has perfectly and that word for explained is uh, the word for uh, exegesis uh, he's he's giving us the understanding he's preached god the father to us and he's revealed him perfectly So to see God or to see Jesus is to have the full explanation of who God the Father is. Jesus, in essence, is what can be seen about what is impossible to be seen. Jesus is what can be seen of what is impossible to be seen. And so he says to Philip, no, no, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. You're asking to see God. You're seeing God right now. I am God. Now, turn back to John chapter 5. I want you to see, uh, this is review because we've been through these already, but I want you to see the reaction and the response of the people around Jesus. John has been showing us this entire time, based on the works that Jesus has done and the words that Jesus had said, he is God, very God. There's no doubt. John chapter 5, verse 18, after healing the paralytic on the Sabbath, for this reason... We'll start in verse 17. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, verse 18, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, not only because he's breaking the Sabbath, but also because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew it. They figured it out. It was not 
incredibly difficult to understand. He was making himself out to be God, to be equal with God. Turn to chapter 8, verse 58. In chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to the religious leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was born, I am, using the name of God, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him because he claimed to be God. One last passage, John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They must have had a lot of muscles by the end of Jesus' ministry because they're constantly just picking up boulders to try and chuck at him. They know that he is God. He's claiming to be God. They believe that he's not God, so they believe he's blaspheming. But they know that he's claiming to be God. Somehow Philip and the other disciples are missing this. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. So to see Jesus is to see God. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know this passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So if you work that backwards, in the face of Jesus is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. If you want to see the glory of God, stare at Jesus. He is God himself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He created the universe. We sang about that. He's the one who authored the creation and upholds it by the power of his word. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is God, very God, in human form. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the, the glory of the Father, and the exact representation of the Father's nature, and upholds all things by the power of his word. He is God, very God. That's why he was prophesied to come with the name Emmanuel, God with us. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus, seeing the paralytic who was dropped through the roof, says, Sons, your sins, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, who are you that you, you claim to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, yeah, that's the point. And just to prove to you that I can forgive sins and that I am God, I will heal this man. Take up your pallet and walk. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, this is the true God and this is eternal life. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is God, very God. So, back in John chapter 14... Jesus tells Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to see the Father, just look at me. So how can you say, end of verse 9, show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? So somehow there's a connection here. This is the Trinity. One of the central themes in the entire Gospel of John is the unity of the Father and the Son and Jesus is bringing that back up here. I am in the Father. I'm not the Father. I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. And the union with the Father is, 
is given in the, in the expression of the works and the words that Jesus is doing and saying. This is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So at least we have two members of the Godhead there. We have the Trinity on display for us. I am in the Father. The Father's in me. We are both fully God. Now, I started, uh, it was about Tuesday night that I started studying this portion and thinking, okay, now I'm going to preach on the Trinity. Right? This is the Trinity. And I started thinking, okay, how can I outline, how can I figure out the way to go through the Scriptures to reveal with clarity the Trinity to us? And then I read this from J.C. Ryle, and I said, thank you, J.C. <laughs> he said, we must often be content to believe and revere the oneness of Jesus and the Father without attempting to explain it. How does the Trinity work? I don't know. It does. I don't know how. You can try the, the apple illustration or the egg illustration or the water illustration. They all fall short. I'm looking forward to one day asking Jesus in heaven, can you explain this to me? Because I just, I believe it. God is one. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God. In three persons. That's not three gods. How does this work? I don't know. <laughs> and JC says it's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. When we bump up against mysterious places in the scriptures, let's bow the knee in worship. Let's bow the knee in reverence and awe and wonder. So Jesus says, I am in the Father. You've seen the Father. You've seen God because I am God. I'm in the Father. I'm not the Father, but I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. And as highly as they thought of Jesus, his disciples could not grasp the fact that Jesus is truly God. God, very God. So notice, their Christology is accurate but incomplete. It's accurate but it's incomplete. There's still things that need to be added to it. But because there are things that need to be added to it, Jesus never says, so you can't get to heaven. Just because their knowledge is incomplete doesn't mean that they can't be saved. You can be saved and still have things that you need to grow in and to learn. Notice also that Jesus is the perfect teacher. And yet his disciples have been with him for three and a half years and they still don't get this. So we need to be patient with one another if we're not getting concepts and biblical doctrine. Jesus says very clearly, to see me is to see God. Number two. To hear the words of Jesus is to hear the voice of God. So to see Jesus is to see God. To hear my words is to hear the voice of God. Middle of verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. The words that I'm saying to you are words that are coming to me from the Father. I'm not speaking on my own initiative. I'm speaking the words of God. I'm speaking what God wants me to speak. But notice that's not enough for Philip. That's not enough for the disciples. We're, we're in a moment here in the upper room where the disciples are saying, we need something else. We need something more. We need something powerful. Give us a vision. Give us something that will get us through because we're not comforted. We're feeling empty. And Jesus is saying, are my words enough? Because my words are God's words. Now, again, they know that Jesus' words are God's words. We just sang it, right? John chapter 6. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words. You alone have the words of eternal life. But in their despair, they've forgotten that. 
I think that's why Jesus is patient with them. Remember, we've gone back to this passage many times before. I would encourage you to memorize it. Job 6.26. Would you rebuke the words of a despairing man when the words of a despairing man are but wind? Sometimes despairing people say really dumb things. Let it go. Let it go. Jesus is not rebuking them. He's encouraging them. He's not saying, why, why have you not gotten that? I'm out. This is, I'm done. You are lost causes because you haven't figured these things out. No, he says, let me explain it one more time. I know that you're despairing. And I know that you think you need a, a fuller revelation of God and then you'll be satisfied. And I'm trying to tell you, I've given all the revelation of God to you that you need. Be satisfied by it. So, to hear the words of Jesus is to hear the voice of God. And finally, number three, to see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. To see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. So, to see Jesus is to see God. To hear his words is to hear the voice of God. And to see his works is to see the works of God. Middle of verse 10 again. What did you expect Jesus to say here? He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father, we'd expect him to say, but the Father who has given me those words is the one speaking through me. But notice what he says. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So, in other words, through Jesus' words, God the Father is working. God is working through words. This is so crucial. Please write that down. God is working through words. And that's why I really wanted to preach the next part of this passage, which is the promises that Jesus has given to us. Because he says, you can do greater works than I'm doing, but the works, are they just miraculous powers and and amazing signs and wonders? In context, I think Jesus would say, not at all. In context, he's saying the greatest work that the Father has given is my words being spoken. It's not miracle signs and wonders. We're going to get into that next week. But, and we'll cover that, that, that transition statement. is so crucial. It's a clue to be able to understand what these precious, profound promises are that Jesus gives to us. He says, I'm doing the works of God. To see me, to hear me speak, and to see me work is to see the Father do these things through me. So, verse 11, believe me. Just believe me. Believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Believe me. You can do it. Just, just do it. Just say right now, I believe. You can do that. But, I love the grace of Jesus. Otherwise, middle of verse 11, believe because of the works themselves. He says to the disciples, look, I'm telling you the truth about who I am. You can believe me right now. But if you're still struggling to believe, if your faith is small and you're saying, I don't know if I can just take you at your word. These are some really lofty things to believe. Jesus says, that's okay. That's why I've done works. The works follow them backwards to see that I have to be who I claim to be because of what I'm doing to validate those crazy claims that I'm making about myself. What grace. If you can't get these truths if you can't get it just follow the works backwards that's john again gets that that's these signs right these banners show you that the signs that 
John records are to get us to understand Jesus is who he claims to be. And by believing in him, we'd have life in his name. What the signs point you to the fact that Jesus is truly God. And so Jesus says, believe in me. But I don't understand. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. Sometimes we think, I need to understand a concept and then I'll believe. And Jesus says, if you believe me, you'll understand. Believing is understanding. If you believe me, this is also scattered throughout the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, just one place, when he tells uh, Mary, have I not told you that if you believe me, you will see the glory of God? If you believe me, you'll understand. So well, I don't understand enough to believe. No, no, believe and then you'll understand. You have it backwards. But Jesus isn't calling for blind faith here. He's asking them to objectively see the works that he has done, to think about them, to believe, even with, without a full understanding of who Jesus is. He says, you can believe, and then you'll understand more as your faith allows you to see it. So, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father seen God. You know what it is to be God if you've seen me. If you hear my words, you've heard the voice of God. If you've seen my works, then you've seen the works of God. So he says, believe in me. Believe in me. As we wrap up our time, just three points in conclusion here. Jesus is teaching about himself and he's asking us to believe. And my question to our hearts is, do you simply believe in Jesus? Number one, do you simply believe Believe in Jesus. Another way we can say it is, are you okay with faith and not sight yet? Are you okay with a simple faith that says, man, I don't understand everything, but I'll believe. Notice what Philip is is asking for. He's asking for sight. Show us the Father. We want to see the Father, and Jesus teaches about faith. Jesus teaches about faith. What is Philip asking for? He wants a vision. He wants to see. He wants something tangible to cling to, to hang on to. And then he'll be content. How often do we encounter this in the world today? Oh, if I, could just, if I could just see God, then I would know. If I could just see a sign. How often do we encounter that personally? Let's be honest. Let's be humble enough to admit that we, we all at some point in time have earnestly wished that we could see God. I just want to see him just want to see him i just want to hear his voice and and we thought like philip if i can see him and hear his voice then the christian life would be easier right we've been there if i could just see him if i could just hear him speak to me i want to hear his voice then the christian life would be easier and if we're honest we sometimes feel like god's holding out on us because he's not showing us himself he hasn't offered himself to be seen or touched or heard And we, like the disciples, in our despair, we would seem that God's extremely remote, far off. Why don't don't you show yourself? Why don't you speak to me? If you just give me a demonstration of who you are, that would be enough to secure my belief. You can hear the words of the religious leaders, right? Oh, just, just hop off the cross and we'll believe. Do something and we'll believe. What does Jesus say Philip. No, no, it's not about me doing something extra. You have sufficient understanding by my words and my works. It's just you have to apprehend that. You have to believe that. You have to understand it in a a way that you will submit to it. 
I don't need to give you anything extra. You have what you already need. If seeing physically is the important thing, then we're all in trouble because we can't see Jesus. But if perceiving and believing is the important thing, then we're not in trouble at all because we can see and perceive and believe the truth of God. So Philip, Jesus says, to see God at work, all you need is to listen to me speak. So I think the first point in concluding is, do we, are we okay with that? Are we okay with simple faith and belief that says, I, I can't see you, I, I want to, but I don't need a vision. I don't need a miracle. I don't need a sign or a wonder to then follow you. I'm not waiting. I'm going to follow you because what I have is enough. That leads to number two. Do you love the scriptures? Do you love the scriptures? Again, if we're honest, can we just all admit that we become discontent with only having the Jesus in the scriptures? I want, I want the Jesus in the scriptures to show up here. I want to see him. That would make life so much easier. Peter would say, no, it wouldn't. Second Peter chapter 1. If you have the choice, Peter says, of having the Bible or having a vision of Jesus, take the Bible every time. What? Peter says, no, no, if you have a vision of Jesus, it could be subjective. You, you could see him and maybe misinterpret the words that he's saying. But if you have the scriptures, you have something passed down once for all, complete, authoritative, you have it. And it will never go away. If you want Jesus, if you want to be with him, if you want to see him, then I plead with you, become a Christian and follow him until your dying day, and then you'll be with him forever. But don't steal heaven's joys for the here and now. Wait. You'll be with him one day. We'll see him one day. We'll be able to touch him one day. But until that day, let faith be enough, and let the scriptures guide you and be content with the scriptures. Again, Philip says, I need the Father. I need a vision. I can't do this by faith alone. You're asking an awful lot of us, Jesus. I can't do it by faith alone. And Jesus says, the words that I've spoken to you is everything you need. You don't need anything else. The truth of God's word is all the evidence we need. I personally have never seen Jesus. I've never had a vision of him. I've never heard his voice. But in this book, I see Jesus so clearly. In this book, I hear his voice so clearly. And it's enough to sustain me and be the anchor for my boat and the ballast in my boat to get me to him physically one day in glory. So instead of praying what Philip is praying, I just want to see you. I want a vision. Give me a sign. Let's make our prayer lives like the disciples in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, when they say, Lord, increase our faith. Not... not Show me signs. Just increase my faith. And the answer to that question is that your faith increases proportionally to your understanding of the scriptures. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Not your presence. Your word is truth. Not a vision. Your word is truth. So do you love the scriptures? Are you content with the, the scriptures alone to reveal Jesus to us? Finally, number three, do you love the Savior? Do you simply believe in Jesus? Do you love the scriptures? And number three, do you love the Savior? Do you love Jesus? This passage is all about Jesus saying who he is and, and what he has done. And, and it brings us to a place where we're saying, okay, 
we have two options here. We can either believe and treasure him, or we can reject him, call him a liar, and choose our own path. That's what Paul was afraid of for the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he said, This is what I'm afraid for. I'm afraid that you will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. Are you devoted to Jesus? John Owen, one of my favorite Puritan writers, says, He is no Christian who lives not much in the meditation of the mediation of Christ, the person and work of Christ. John Owen says, you're not a Christian if you don't love, cherish, treasure meditating on the person and work of Jesus. If you say, oh, I love Jesus and I follow him, but you don't love meditating on his person and his work, John Owen says, you have reason to wonder if you're saved. Alistair McGrath says it this way, if there is a heartbeat of the Christian faith, you can boil it down to one essence. It lies in the sheer intellectual delight and excitement caused by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you love Jesus? Does Jesus thrill your soul? If not, then I would say either, number one, your sin has clouded your view. You love him, but your sin has clouded your view so that you're struggling to love him. And you're loving other things more than you love him. That's why our mission statement is we want to shepherd everyone who comes to these doors to value Jesus above everything else. We want Jesus to reign supreme in our hearts and our affections. So perhaps you are saved, but there is sin that you're clinging to so closely that it's clouding your love and your view of who Jesus is. Or perhaps you're not truly saved at all. You don't love Jesus because... You have never understood his love for you. John tells us that. We, we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. So can I plead with you? Do you treasure the gospel? You probably know it. That God in his holiness cannot allow sin into his presence. We can't dwell with him as sinners because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all turned to our own ways. Romans chapter 2 says there's no one who pursues God. There's nobody who seeks after him. And because of that, Romans 6 says the wages of our sin is death. We all deserve eternal separation from God. We can't be in his presence. We have to be thrown into outer darkness. We have to be thrown into hell where we would experience the punishment, the just wrath of God, the judgment due our sins, the penalty that we have earned because of our sin. But God loves us. And so he made a way for us. And Jesus is that way. He sent Jesus, his one and only son, perfect, blameless, sinless. He lived the sinless life that you and I needed to live to get to heaven on our own, but we couldn't live because we're sinners. And then Jesus crushed. Jesus was crushed on the cross by his father, bearing the penalty for our sins. God the Father treated Jesus the way that we should be treated, so that he could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life. The question is, will you follow Jesus? Will you love him? Will you trust him? Will you treasure him more than anything in this world? One last passage. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll end here. Do you love Jesus? Do you value him above all things? 
there are many reasons too. Um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says he's the image of the invisible God. He's revealed God to us. Chapter uh, 1, verse 16, by Jesus, everything was created. And everything's been created through him and for him. And then verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning of the firstborn. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that Jesus' person and his work all leads up to so that he will come to have first place in everything. Jesus does not want to be first on your list. He doesn't want to have first place on your list. We, we tend to think, we'll put Jesus first and then family and then academics and whatever. Jesus doesn't want to be first on your list. He wants to be your entire list. If he doesn't have first place in everything, he's number one, number two, number three, number 398. He's everything. He is the list. If he isn't your list, then you don't treasure Jesus. You don't love him. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 that if we don't love Jesus, we will be accursed. So, Will we be like Philip and say, oh, I, I see Jesus in the scriptures, but I need more? Or will we hear Jesus speak to us today and say, I've seen God because I've seen Jesus clearly revealed in the scriptures. And I bow the knee to him as my Lord, as my Savior, and as my greatest treasure above anything this world has to offer. God, make that so in our lives. God, I pray that you would give us grace to live out these truths that we would truly love Jesus and cherish him more than anything this world has to offer because of who he is and because of what he's done. Oh, we love him only because he first loved us and he gave himself for us. So, Father, be pleased as we sing praises to the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Our Savior, Son of God, our greatest treasure. We love him. Increase our love for him. Increase our faith and make us content and excited and passionate about studying the revelation of Jesus as given to us in Holy Scripture. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.